welcome to Indie Dotes, the podcast of independent creators. I'm Susan Bond, the host of your show. Today I have Zed Shaw on the show. He's the author of Learn uh, He's the author of Learn Python the Hard Way and a host of other things. Uh, he's also a painter and makes music and apparently builds guitars, which I'm really excited <laughs> to learn more about. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. This is going to be great. <laughs> I'm, I'm really excited. We've been kind of working on this for a while, and we were finally able to get our schedules and hurricanes to stop. Uh... Yeah, Hurricane Irma. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, so were you uh, evacuated? No, they kept telling us to evacuate, but um, I'm actually in this building. Uh, me and my, my wife were in this building, and it's just a, it's a crazy building. So uh, we have like this insane glass and all this stuff. So I just sealed up the pat the patio doors and we hung out. I have like I was in the army, so I just basically pretended I was in the army again. I bought all the food we needed for a month, <laughs> and then oh wow, uh, yeah, and then it just ended up being like nothing. Like I think we didn't even get our balcony all that wet. <laughs> so oh, okay, got it. Okay, how how yeah. high are you as your build? Are you like ground floor, or are, like you in a bigger building? We're on twelfth, and it's a newer building, uh, so it has all the um, the new requirements for insane impact glass and all this stuff. So we were good. Yeah, it was no big deal. Oh wow. Okay, got it. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously the keys seemed like they were hit pretty hard, um, but yeah, but yeah, the keys got it really hard, um, especially the middle keys. So that that seemed to be the worst of it, and then it seemed to go up to Naples. Yeah. So, but we were good. Okay, very good, very good. Um, so I'm glad to have you on the show, and I'm glad that that Hurricane Irma did not uh, cause you too much heartache. Um, Thank you. So we want uh, the thing I was really the reason I reached out was because you made a, a decision recently, I'm not sure, I can't remember the exact date, but to begin charging for uh, Learn Python the hard way. And you, you decided to keep um, the Ruby version free, but that was the reason I reached out. And what I'm really curious about and hope we can talk about today is this idea of like making things and being paid for it and where the boundary lines are and how we make decisions about that. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, yeah, so a little bit of background. Basically, uh, around 2009, 2010, I wrote my first book, Learn Python the Hard Way. And um, at the time, I, I wrote it because all the books uh, that currently taught people assumed either everyone was a child, so they were really patronizing and kind of dumb and didn't really teach things. They assumed it was dangerous, right? <laughs> um, or they catered to programmers who had been coding since they were 12, you know, they already knew two or three programming languages, so you would go get a beginner book, and it would be, it would just, it would start off with, like, the most complicated stuff possible. And uh, my book, I basically wrote it so that anyone could learn to code. I didn't assume your age or the kind of computer you had or anything, and I put it up. And then uh, shortly after that, I found out there was a bunch of people downloading it, and then I slowly, I think I charged $5.00. Then I charged, you know, $20, and then I charged 30 and then I wrote a second book. and But I still kept the book free because I was seeing there was a trend uh, within just programming in the industry of kind of taking advantage of people's ignorance. You know, mm. if they didn't know how computers worked, they didn't know how to code, then they were kind of going to get taken advantage of, you know. Um, everything from like Facebook data collection to people telling you about security hacks and being just lying to you straight, um, things like that. So I kind of wanted my books to be free so everyone could learn to code and sort of be the masters of their destiny, right? And then on the side, I charged for videos. 
So that was originally how I charged things. And that worked pretty good. Um, yeah, so then basically I had, um, I had that going for probably about five years where I would charge for the videos. Uh, my books were in like bookstores, um, I had a book publisher, they're on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all that stuff. And then I gave the text of the book away for free and I wrote a series of other books and, um, Eventually, it got to where um, I had so many books, and there were so many universities and so many boot camps and all these groups that were using it that um, it just felt to me like the Python book, the only people learning to code for the Python book were people who were professionals who were just using it to sort of you know get their job. They could totally afford it. Um, and then I just started, started thinking about how to charge, and that's how that started. Well, and what was, uh, and I know you wrote a blog post about this, and we'll link to this in the episode. Why did you decide not to charge for the Ruby version? Well, so I still want people to learn to code, and I found that it doesn't matter what language you start with. Like, if you don't know anything, it doesn't matter. You can start with Ruby, you can start with Fortran. It really doesn't matter. Um, it, it's sort of like I tell people, they ask me what's the best language. I'm kind of like, you know, let's say you don't know how to ride a bike. It doesn't matter what bike you get. I mean, you don't go around going, should I get like a $4,000 road bike so that way I can learn to ride a motorcycle later? I'm like, no, nah, I just get any junky $200, $100 bike, right? It doesn't matter. Your first bike doesn't matter. You're going to break it, tear it up, who cares, right? So it's the same thing. So I leave the Ruby book up because I still want people to be able to learn to code. I still want them to go out and do things. And also the Ruby book, I see it's mostly people who just really like Ruby. They really want to learn to code. They're not really using it as a you know, like to pad the resume was what I saw. Um, and the Ruby community seems to be a little more open to that book. Um, with the Python community, um, one of the reasons I started charging for it was I found that people who run the Python community were starting to go around and sort of tell people not to use my book when like a month before they had told everyone to use it. And there's like a whole weird backstory to it. But after a while, I was like, you know, if everyone's just using the book to get ahead, um, they're not really buying it. They're just sort of freeloading. It's not what I had before, which was a bunch of people who knew nothing. This is people who are like professionals and whatnot. And the community isn't really giving me the respect I deserve for giving a free resource that helps them. Then, you know, I might as well start charging for it. And that makes sense. I mean, it also makes sense as a baby Rubyist. Um, that was the first language I really learned. I mean, I, I knew a little bit of other things, but um, I learned Ruby because I wanted to. Right, just for the right. the joy of it. I, I, I right. that was that. You know, everyone said, "Oh, why don't you learn PHP or another language that would be more useful for me?" But the 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 reality was, I really just wanted to learn to program in Ruby, and I'm one of those people who learns Ruby, but not because I'm going to be really using it to become a developer. Yeah, exactly. And and see, that's originally what the Python and the Ruby books were. They were just people who wanted to learn the code. They didn't necessarily have like a career goal in mind I had pos actually positioned it and told people like look I don't care if you get a job I don't care if you become a programmer I just think you should learn to code it's like learning algebra in high school that's it and um, so what ended up happening is that was fine but then Python became so popular there's so many people who are learning Python to go get their job in data science and whatnot and these are not poor people I mean this is not like before, when it was like people all over the world who were very poor, these are professionals who can totally afford $30. And really doing my original goal, which was helping lots of people who couldn't afford it, 
So I'm going to keep one book that seems to be the people who just really need to learn to code because they love it, the Ruby one, free. And then I'm going to start charging for the Python book, and I'm going to take that money that I make and start rolling it into more projects to help people. Um, and use the money for like a, a larger goal than just, you know, my original one, which was helping people to code. I mean, it, it makes a ton of sense to me. Now, when you were writing these books, how were you earning money, right? So if you weren't, you know, like, mm -hmm. how, what was the income stream look like? Um, yeah, so uh, originally I was just selling the, the videos. So was, what I do is... That's all video, like, was that all? Yeah. Oh, got it, okay. Yeah, so the books are really logically structured, and I think that's the thing that um, that I am particularly good at, which is taking a subject, breaking it down into a good logical order, and then just presenting it in a way so that when you go through it, by the time you're done, you kind of know stuff, just sort of like you sort of slide into knowing it rather than it being incredibly difficult. And so I found that that worked fine, but then there's a lot of people who really need videos. Especially when with computers, computers are weirdly interactive, you know, you get a bug and if the book can't cover every contingency. But in videos, I can totally show you that. So I made the videos and I charged 30 bucks for that. And then you could read the book and if you needed extra help, you bought the videos. I got it. So like there was a $30 for a video for the book. There was, was there... Was it just one video or were there multiple videos for each book? One, it was one per exercise. So there's 52 exercises. Oh, wow. And then some of the exercises, I did three, one for each platform, Windows, Linux, and OS X. So we're talking, um, it would be anywhere from like six to 15, 16 hours of video. Okay, and, and that, wait, each video was $30 or the whole set was 30? The whole set was 30. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah that's really, that's affordable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I try to make it very affordable. So even though I say I'm charging, it's not like I'm charging a lot. I mean, there are other courses that are charging four or five hundred dollars for a lot less. Oh, oh, so, for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is really affordable. So yeah. When did you remind me? When when did you make the decision to start charging for uh, Learn Python the hard way? When and when did you make that switch over? So that was a really hard decision for me because I struggled a lot with, I mean, it's, it's this constant thing that I think a lot of creators have of, you know, I really wanted to help a lot of people. You know, I knew that, it, you know, I would get emails from people all the time saying that, like, reading my books dragged them out of poverty or it was the first time they learned to code and now they're a programmer. And I really wanted to keep doing that. But at the same time, I also wanted to do more. And it's like, you can't really do more. I can't hire people to help me. I can't work on new products. I can't expand the things I'm doing unless I have money. So it's this conflict of, I want to help folks, but I also, if I have more money, I can help more folks. So it's, it's this constant conflict, you know? So I talked with friends for probably a year. I mean, I actually started thinking about doing this um, in 2015 or 16. Oh, wow. And yeah, and I would tell friends, I'm like, do you think I should charge? They're like, dude, you have helped 12 million some odd people code. I think you can charge now. And they were like. But it's hard, right? I was just actually having a conversation with a friend about this last night that I sometimes yeah. feel pulled between being a creator i love to create things and create but then also wanting to help people right yeah it's i think there's a you want to get paid yeah you want to get paid right because you have to eat i mean we live in a capitalist society okay right and right you know there's there's things like patreon where you can go and you can beg for help but it's so much easier to just give a thing and get money, right? I mean, that's just the way things are set up. Your taxes are better that way. Your accounting is better that way. 
So it's sort of like if I want to make more things, I need to make money. If I have money, I can have assistants, I can have copy editors, I can have better audio video production, right? But then if I charge money, I help fewer people, right? You're always stuck with that. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of like I've, I've had to pick one book and I picked the most popular book. Um, I agonized over it. I talked with friends who thought I was crazy. They said, dude, just charge for your books. Your books are great. They're low cost. Just charge for them. You've helped tons of people already. You've paid your dues, charged the money. And I said, okay, I'm just going to charge for the Python book because the majority of the people going into Python are people who are trying to get a job and they can afford the $30, right? And then I have my Ruby book free. I still help people who want to learn to code. So if you totally want to learn to code, you can read my Ruby book for free. And that seemed like a good compromise, right? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is because I think that's the dilemma. We have to figure out how, I think for me personally, I've gone back and forth. I mean, I'll admit it. I've seesawed on, you know, on the create side versus like the helping side. I don't know that it's easy to come to a balance. So I really, that's like an elegant solution. So you get to honor both sides of, you know, yeah. what's important to you. Yeah, and, and I think that's, I think there's a lot of platforms and business models that take advantage of uh, a person who creates things desire to create and put it out there. Like, mm. if I had a day job that paid me enough money to do all, what, all the stuff I wanted, right? which I had before, so I didn't really charge for my books. But if I had like a regular day job and it was, you know, six hours a day, and then I could go home and just make, 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 just create all the crap I wanted, I would totally do that. And it would be fine. I'd be totally happy with that. But those kinds of things don't exist very much, you know. it's in These days you work a job, especially in tech, it's like 12 hours a day. Right. So how can you do 12 hours a day and then go home and record for four more hours, right? It's just so hard. You know? Well, right, and at, so, like energetically, yeah. not even just time, energetically trying to get mm -hmm. your brain to do something else is hard. Yeah, it is. It is. Now, I did that for years when I was younger. I mean, like I said, I was in the Army, and then I'd go home, and I'd code for like eight more hours on my own. Wow. Um, but that's when I was like 18, you know? <laughs> the body and the mind I, are different now, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. I only needed two hours of sleep, you know? Oh <laughs> so God. I was like, okay, good. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's really true. It's, it's such a, uh, I, I do think it's a dilemma. It's something we talk a lot about on Indie Dotes and something I'm fascinated with is how people solve this dilemma. Um, yeah. And I think there are lots of different so, ways. So um, before we started recording, you mentioned I had this sort of rant on Twitter about open source yeah. and getting paid. And I think that actually, that rant hits to what I really think should be the sort of the next thing for people who are making platforms for creators, okay? And the thing is, is as a creator myself, I had to build all my own platform because nobody had what I needed. So I had to build, I'm a software developer, so I made my own website, I made my own platform, I made my own marketing, I had everything that I needed, right? But not everyone can do that, right? If you're not a designer, programmer, writer, uh, musician, like, like your probability of doing the same thing I did all by yourself is really low. Right. So people are willing to go to um, a, a Facebook, a Twitter, a, a, a hosting platform like GitHub or SoundCloud or YouTube, and they'll make stuff and put it on that platform uh, to get their stuff out there. That platform handles the logistics and, and the pipe for them, right? The distribution channel brings them the crowd, right? 
So the th problem is, is all those startups and all those companies, for whatever reason, have this weird aversion to helping the creators make money off of the channel. So YouTube's doing better, where they're now paying people uh, to produce content and also a chunk of the revenue from ads. But other platforms don't get it. Like, they don't make it easy for me to do some simple things that would just really help a whole bunch of creators, you know? And I'm not sure why. It's almost like they have this weird, I think there's too much of a hippie culture because it's all in San Francisco. And so they have this weird hatred of money, but then they all want money. <laughs> so it's, it's, it is odd, right? There's definitely yeah. like, I feel like, we know as our society, we have issues with money. You know what I mean? Like we just have these yeah, yeah. weird sideways relationship with it that's conflicted and doesn't really always make sense. Yeah, yeah. Especially, uh, for whatever reason, San Francisco uh, is one of the few places I've lived where, like, they seem to have this very, like, uh, communist, I hate money kind of ideal, but then they have this very libertine, I love big parties at Burning Man, which requires a ton of money kind of thing, right? You know? So they have this conflict where they're, like, they hate money, um, but they also really, really like money. Um, so what that comes out as is it's great for them to make money, but then a lot of their platforms are pitched as, oh, you can come and join a community and not make any money, but we'll make money off of your community, right? And then if you say, I would like to make money on my open source, they're like, oh, yeah, I thought, I thought you were like a creator. I thought you just did it for the love. Why do you want the money? Which, right? uh, yeah, I mean, that this is like such an age-old dilemma for the creator that mm -hmm. I think is just getting more and more intense with the, the new platforms and all of this stuff that we're talking about right now. Right. Right. I mean, I remember one of the tweets you said, um, I think it was from something else. In many ways, open source has conditioned me to not appreciate the value of what I do. And, yeah, it's very true. And, and, and then and then the idea of like these platforms that are built around it that, that just reinforce that. Yes, they they attract, I mean, it's a noble ideal to say, you know, hey, I want people to benefit from the thing I've created. And software, people who made software, the entire world has changed because of open source software developers. I would say 80% of everything you use is based on some open source. But I would say that only 1% of the money from that benefit has gone to the people who created it. Now, currently, they're all sort of like enamored and like fascinated with the idea of making free stuff and then letting other people benefit in from it. But what they don't get is really the majority of the benefit is going to a large, like a few large companies, like a lot of Amazon's tech, a lot of almost all of Google's tech, um, big, big companies, Facebook, all those. They're based on open source. And the best they do is maybe they'll hire the main guy on the project for 200000 a year, right? And then they'll turn around and make billions and billions off of him. And that can't be sustained. Eventually, people who make the software are going to be like, you know what? Actually, you should pay me for this. I'm not going to do this for free. You know, you should pay me straight up cash money. But there's a sort of strange incentive in the tech world. The thing that I believe prevents a lot of these companies from just outright paying open source developers is venture capital. Because if you take, a, say, a venture capital company like um, uh, Y Combinator, it's a very big venture capital, and they do very low-cost investments in startups. Well, they wouldn't be able to invest, say, 100000 in a startup if that startup had to pay a couple million for software to use. So if they start, like, say, GitHub starts letting people charge, then suddenly Y Combinator's cost to run a small startup it just expands a lot. 
So there's a lot of incentive from all the VCs to push companies, say, like GitHub and any of the main hosting companies to not make it easy to charge. And so, because if you make it easy for open source to charge money, then suddenly all your cost of doing business rises as a VC because you're invested in, say, 100 companies. Now they all need more money. And a lot of people don't talk about that. They, you know, they think of VCs as benevolent, but I know for sure that there's VCs who are doing their best to keep the cost of invested companies down by making it difficult for open source developers to make money. Wow, I, you know, I mean, <laughs> I'm just like, wow, really good points. I mean, I thought of some of this, but you know, the sort of the, the role of VCs is, 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 pretty, is pretty interesting. I mean, what do you think the way out is? Well, so this is the thing, is if you look at the businesses from the, la the last dot-com explosion, right, the ones that survived and still make insane amounts of money are the ones who made money on uh, helping other people make money, right? So they skimmed off the top. So you look at eBay, PayPal, um, any of those companies. If you look at Amazon even, so Amazon is making insane amounts of money helping other people publish books, sell stuff, use their warehouse, host um, services, the companies that make the most money, and you look at banks, banks make most of their money by skimming off the top of other people making money. So all these companies who are hosting creator content are missing out on all the money they could be making skimming off the top, helping the creators make money. Because they have some weird thing where they want the creators to make it for free, and they don't get that, well, you know, if you were helping creators make, say, like, 100 grand a year, and you're skimming 10 off the top of all of that, that's a way more money than a few, like, you know, 1,000 in ad revenue off of each creator, right? So that's the key. I think starting with GitHub. GitHub easily could have a thing where you say, there's a button, you click it, and you get a commercial license for that software. And the commercial license charges a, a credit card, whatever the developer set, and then you get a premium queue to post your problems and things you need fixed, and you get a special version of the software, whatever you want. But the second I mention that, people go, oh no, you can't do that. That would destroy open source. And I'm kind of like, well, it's going to be destroyed anyways because the people making it don't make any money. <laughs> so they don't want to make it anymore. Wait, how would it destroy? What, what's the, the argument of how it would destroy open source? That's something I don't get. Okay. So for me, yeah, I don't get. They, they say it will destroy open source. I'm like, because people will make money? I don't understand. People are already making money on software. It's just the wrong people are making money on open source software. The creators aren't making the money on open source software. It's the Google and the Facebook. They're the ones making the money on open source software. So if those companies have half a trillion dollars, they should take some of their half a trillion and spend it on open source. But people don't understand the power of Google. Like... Google has such a huge influence on venture capital, Facebook, all those giant companies, that if someone like GitHub comes out and adds that button, I guarantee there's going to be problems getting funding, problems hiring, problems with uh, patents, all sorts of things. And people don't understand that. That's you know They'll say it's a conspiracy theory, but I'm pretty sure that that's one of the big motivators behind it. And then also this weird cultural thing of, well, if you do open source, you do it because you love it. It's like, well, can I do it because I love it and also make money at it? That's sort of the sweet spot, right? Make the cash and also do it because I love it. Right, right, right. It, it, yeah, absolutely. And I think you bring up a really good point about someone's actually making money in open source. 
Exactly. Somebody's making, someone, I mean, see, and I tend to be more on the business side of things. So I'm always like, okay, what's the business play there? Who's making exactly. money? Because <laughs> I know exactly. somebody's making money because that's not the way, the world doesn't work in, I'm, I'm sorry, it doesn't work in like happy rainbows and we all just do things that we love and it all just works out. We are, live in a capitalist right. society. So yeah. that's always my angle. I mean, Who's making the money? And, you know, I really like the Patreon platform. Patreon is was started by a guy who did this for years, you know, yep. and um, Jack Conti, yep. you know. So he knows he knows his stuff, man. He did this on YouTube for years, and he's got a good solution. But there's some, there's some problems with doing that, especially if you do software, right? Because begging people for donations when you're not a nonprofit is sort of like a tax deadly trap, right? It's like, how do, I tried to do this. I'm like, I explained to my accountant, like, well, they give it to me because I'm cool. They're like, what do you mean? Because you're cool. Did you give them something? You're like, no, I didn't give them anything. They just, they just like my stuff. It's like, well, you can't just do that. You have to give them something. And because we, we base it on trade, you know? So I started charging for my books. That was so much easier. They were like, what'd you give them? I gave them a PDF. And then I was done. That was it. My taxes were fine. I didn't have to be a nonprofit. I didn't have to file for a 5013C. None of that. So for open source, they need a way to say, I charged them for a license or I charged them for access or I charged them for something. They paid a subscription for a thing versus the patron model, which is they gave me money because I exist. I don't know, because I made a stuff. Right. You know, there's no direct trade. Well, right. You know? Mike, um, when I had Mike Param on the show and I'll link to his episode um, with this one as well, we talked a lot about this, right? Because he built Sidekick, you know, open source project. He built closed source on top of it. And he calls this like um, tip jar mindset. Right, exactly. Right? The, and like, I mean, how can you, you're not a business if you're, if you've like tip jar mindset. Exactly. And the problem with the tip jar mindset is you have to constantly perform. You have to be like a busker, right? So the thing is, is as a creator, you have ups and downs. So what is it like one month you get sick and you don't eat? Like, no. In software, this is even worse because, okay, you know, I make a music, I make an art, fine. I can do that every day. But software is, you're supposed to get to a point where you stop working on it. Like it just works now and you're just fixing things and maybe you do a new version. But so if I, the way software works is, if I have commercial licenses and I'm sick on a, on, in December, my commercial licenses still keep working because my software keeps working, right? Mm -hmm. So the tip jar mentality just doesn't work in software. Yeah, it, 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 it doesn't. I really love the way he called that. I, I admit he said mm -hmm. tip jar mindset. I don't know if it's been said elsewhere, but I really love that idea because it, mm -hmm. it, it gets to the heart of um, just that there's a problem that we have with open source, right? It's, it's, it's not a sustainable model. Right. And then, you know, there's other things that people who do open source work for. You know, there used to be sort of an unwritten contract that if a company like Facebook was benefiting from your software, you sort of had an easy time getting a job there. You got hired, no problem. They just begged you to work there. They paid you oodles of cash. So that's fine. There's people who are like, they wrote their software and now they work at Facebook making a lot of money and that's what well, right, works for them. Right, because right? making software can absolutely build your reputation and get you exactly. career opportunities. Yeah. Right. But I found that that changed. I think that changed actually around 2008 uh, or so, or at least from my experience. They figured out they didn't have to hire you because platforms like GitHub and online um, ways to handle your changes and requests for changes made it so they didn't have to have you at their company to get priority support. Everything was priority. 
so they could submit tickets and you would fix it. So why would they hire you? And the attitude changed from, oh, hey, you know what? If these if these people are really good at their software, we're going to hire this woman who's made this awesome piece of software. Um, we're going to hire her. Now it's like, well, why should we hire her? We just send her a ticket request and pretend we're not Facebook. And then she fixes it and you're good. And... I experienced where like there were people like Twitter and like big companies who were using my software, making you know, Joyant, all these companies were making tons of money. And then I would hear from friends that the guy who runs the company would be at a party saying that the reason why his platform doesn't work is because of my software when it's completely a lie or that he just doesn't like me because I'm, I'm a jerk or something like that and, and refuses to pay me any money. So he gleefully steals everything from me, you know, and after you hear that, you're like, okay, so in addition to making you something beneficial, I have to also kiss your ass and worship you as a company. Mm. Like, no, give me capitalism, capitalism, the contract. I, you give me money, I give you better stuff. Done. We don't have to have a personal relationship. It's clear, right? We don't right? have to do anything. It's not murky. Yeah, it's, it's clear. clear. And I, yeah. I mean, I live in New York, and I grew up in Detroit. I'm a pretty straight shooting, straight talking kind of like, okay, this for that. So that makes a ton of sense to me. Exactly. But you you talk about that in, like, say, the Valley, especially the San Francisco software scene. They're like, oh, that's dirty. You're like, why is it dirty? It's more dirty for me to have to like you and go to bars with you and drink booze with you. I don't drink. Why should I go to a bar with you? I don't want to go to your parties. I don't want to go to Burning Man with you. I just want you to give me cash. Leave me alone to make my stuff. That's it. And I give you the thing. You give me my thing. We're good. That's all. It's, 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 it's equitable. It's fair. It doesn't care what race, nationality, sexual orientation I am. It's a contract. It's the most simple way to exchange stuff. That's what you should do. Well, and I'm curious about what happened. So you talked about that company that was using your software and didn't want to pay you. What did you do about that? How did you handle that situation? Did you do anything? Well, I just quit doing Ruby. I mean, honestly, after, I mean, during that time period, I couldn't get work because of these guys were straight up slandering me. And I've actually made a few of them apologize. And uh, I was actually homeless for like six months because of that. Oh, my gosh. Um, which is why... Yeah, the only way I got out of it is I quit doing Ruby, and then, I mean, to be honest, uh, I sort of adopted this persona online of a total mega jerk, <laughs> so that way I could, I could fight back, you know? Wait, 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 me, wait, so you adopted a persona of a mega jerk online to fight back? Yeah, for, for a while, I had, like, I had, like, a pretty ruthless blog where I ripped into the Ruby on Rails community and things. Because I found the only way to get them to sort of um, stop slandering me stop saying things about me was to basically tell the truth to be honest but tell it in a very mean way and so what ended up happening was uh, it basically helped me out a lot i mean i hate to say it but um the only thing that seemed to stop uh these guys from taking advantage of me was to basically tell the truth about their operations or to criticize what they're doing back um and standing up for myself wow and so um, and so did, uh, I have so many questions from this. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, where do I go next? So, um, first I want to ask, so, so how did you get yourself out of homelessness for six months? Was it around the time when you adopted this persona and how did you, how did you shift that? Well, um, once I figured out what was going on and that there were people within the Ruby world that were making it so that I couldn't work, I just picked up a new programming language, Python. So that's one of the really great things about the programming world is you'll get typecast as the Ruby guy, 
But if you just go out and make a whole bunch of stuff with a new language, you then can start working in that new language. So programming, when you go get a job, is very capitalist. They're like, oh, he can make a bunch of stuff in Python. We're going to hire him. You know, oh, hey, that woman's really great with Haskell. Let's go hire her. They just, if you demonstrate that you can do it, a lot of times they'll just hire you. Now, whether they treat you right at that place is a whole other thing. But if you can do the work, a lot of times nobody cares, right? Mm. Or at least they shouldn't, right? So that's how I got out of it. I just, once I realized what was going on, I had a few friends who were like contacting me. So I'm like, dude, so-and-so is saying this. Hey, you know, sorry about this. You know, you might want to go check out this Hacker News thread, you know. And I had people helping me out. And then I just changed. I got out of the Ruby community. I went into Python. And uh, yeah, that got me out of it. Wrote my book. Yeah. And how did you, well, so how, how did you start making money? Because if you're homeless, that tells me that like financially you're not in a great space. Right. Yeah. So how did you start making money? Was it from the books? Was it from taking work? Like, how did that happen? Yeah. Uh, so um, w when I say homeless, we're not talking like on the streets, destitute kind of homeless. I was basically just couch surfing with friends. Yeah, but that's but still, I mean, if you're I didn't still, have a job. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that's still pretty like being without a yeah. home is definitely not you're not in a great place. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have a job. Um, you know, my girlfriend left me, and I had to move, and then I, you know, had to borrow money, and then, uh, you know, was having trouble eating. Uh, but, you know, I, I toughed through it. I put up with it. And then, uh, basically, I moved to New York, and I got a job at a bank. <laughs> I mean, that was like... Doing Python. The easiest thing to do. Uh, no, I was doing Ruby at the bank. And the bank was Bear Stearns. Oh. And I worked there for, like, 10 months, and then they imploded. <laughs> yep. Just, like, over a weekend, they died. And actually, when they died, I was like, yeah, that seems about right. I mean, I was in there looking at how they were doing things. I'm like, this place is screwed. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So... But was it enough to get you then on your path? Yes, yes. Wow. Yeah, I think that severance package allowed me to go study guitar. And I studied guitar at a school, and then I sort of taught myself how to learn again and then I used what I learned trying to learn to play guitar um, to basically the basis of my book is this one guitar book I had I learned and so my first book would have never happened if I didn't go work at a bank and didn't use a severance package to go study guitar um, so yeah the whole thing I mean you know it's the way things work sometimes you just sort of fall into them and it worked out well and also that Incredible things can come out of really hard times. Yeah. You know, I think for some people, hard times are hard for them, and they don't pull themselves out of it. I'm very lucky that I was able to pull myself out of it. Yep. Um, I'm very lucky that I'm a, a fairly resilient person for the most part. Um, like, when I got to work, I got no shame, man. I was in the Army. I will go do any job I need to to survive, to feed yep. my family, whatever. Um, yep. So, you know, hey, I got to work at a bank. Work at a bank. There you go. Um, but yeah, I think for other people, sometimes when you're, when you're down, you're homeless, it's hard for you. A lot of people don't pull themselves out of it. And, um, you know, basically because I was poor at different parts of my life and, uh, I know how important it is for people to get work, to have value. That's one of the reasons why I have my stuff for free, you know, cause I mean, I want people to be able to do any job, you know. I mean, hopefully if someone reads my book, I want them to realize how to learn stuff. I mean, it's one of the things that I, the way my book is written is sort of like how I've learned all these different things I know how to do. So I would like it where if people read my book and they get out of it, they go, oh, well, actually, I can probably do just about anything. And they start learning whatever it is that helps them improve their life or change how they do things or get a job, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think that resilience and learning how to learn new things or teach yourself new things 
can really be life-changing. I mean, certainly there are just times that are hard to pull yourself out, but there's something about resilience and being able to learn something new that can help you transform your life out of something hard. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, um, one of the other things that uh, I think a lot of open source developers and actually just, you know, artists and creators in general deal with is, like, depression. And um, one of the things that kept me from charging for my book is I was going through a bit of depression when I was living in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, art made me feel awesome. Like, painting is what dragged me out of that. Like, I think if I hadn't discovered painting, I would be in a much worse place than I am. But um, I kept my books free because I just didn't have the confidence to charge for them. I was depressed, and all I wanted to do was just hang out and paint all day. And I did. I hung out, and I painted all day, and I pulled myself out of it. And then I'm like, you know what? Actually, I can charge. I can trust that people love my material enough to charge money for it now. I don't feel like a depressed loser anymore, so I'm going to charge some money. Um, and I think that's the thing for a lot of people who are depressed. It's hard to see that eventually it will go away if you just keep working at it. Or maybe you need some medication and some therapy, and there's no shame in that, to just go and ask for help. Um, but I think for a lot of people, the worst thing is to just assume it's going to kill you or that it's like the worst thing ever forever. Well, it's hard. I, I think there are a lot of folks, I mean, I have anxiety. I, I don't, you know, I go to the other side and, and it can also be just as crippling, right? Like I'm mm -hmm, always going mm -hmm. to feel anxious forever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm going to feel like I'm jumping out of my skin for the rest of my life and there's no way out, it, you know? And, and I think, I love what you said too about like that the art it sounds like you're resilient and then also that creating an art actually helped pull you through. It totally did, yeah. There, I don't believe in the sort of Freudian thing about contemporary art where like some part of my soul goes into the spider right. sculpture that I make. Yeah, no, okay. But I do believe that um, you can make great art channeling your emotions and your pain and your feelings and your anxiety into the art, right? So it's similar like when I studied martial arts, you learn to control your anger not by suppressing it, but by making it do what you want. Yes. So you take your anger and you channel it into power and energy to defend yourself, that kind of thing. So I sort of take the same attitude with painting. I know for at least me, one thing that held me back in creating and putting things out there. So I wrote for years and years and years. I mean, poetry, personal essays. I wrote for years and years and years and never shared mm -hmm. anything because uh -huh. I was really afraid of the response. And that yes, I wouldn't yes. know, because I don't, I don't know. I don't think I have a very thick skin. My, my layer is permeable, which I like. You know, I like the, the idea that, that, that I can, because it helps me connect with people. But I was terrified yes, to create and yes. put it, I could, would create but not put it in the world because I wasn't, I wasn't ready for how people might respond. Yeah. So this is the, a big conundrum. So if you create anything, you have to have some sensitivity. Right? Yes. If it's going to be well received by other humans, you have to be sensitive to who they are and how they feel and yes. what what makes them, you know, in software, you're like, OK, what is their pain? What how do they feel? Right. If it's art, it's like, you know, how does this make me feel? How would this make someone else feel like would they have the same feeling I have when they see this painting or they hear this music? You know, will they enjoy it? Will they laugh? You know, whatever. So you have to be sensitive. But then when you're sensitive, every criticism just cuts to the bone, you know, because you're sensitive, you're permeable, you're a salamander, you know, it's like it just goes right on through. So 
so what I tend to tell people is I go through, what I do is I do two phases. I do a creative phase where I'm sensitive and I'm, I'm basically, you know, open and stuff. And then I turn that off and I go engineer phase, like critical phase. And I look at it critically. I'm like, okay, well, how could I improve this? How could I change this? No, I think that thing right there is crap. I'm going to change that over. How would I promote this? How would I put this out? And that changing back and forth, that ability to switch mental attitudes from creative and sensitive to critical and analytic really helps you make things that are high quality, but also when you put them out there and people come back, you've already gone through most of the criticisms you're going to do, so it's not as painful. It doesn't hurt as much. It, it's actually, a, I, I, I love that. that. I've done something kind of similar, though. I don't think I've done it as consciously and detailed as you do, but now I'm like, oh, I might try this. Um, I, mm -hmm. I'll like sometimes when I write something, I'll prepare myself and I think, well, what might be the objections? What, what might they say, yeah. um, you know, about what I've just done? Like I just wrote an article about slime proofing your marketing and, and we know software developers are like allergic to marketing and yet yeah, yeah. they need it. <laughs> yes. And you, yeah. you, you have to. And so I, I, when I wrote this article, I thought, I know that I could get, I could get X, Y, or Z comment and I'm okay with that. And, and, you know, right. I, I, I was sensitive and created it. And then I, when I put it out in the world, it's out in the world today. Uh, I thought, oh, okay, well, I'm now I'm, I, I'm prepared for these. And I, and I, and I, and I adjusted the article. I did actually go back and adjust the article to make sure that I addressed a couple of those things. Yeah. 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 I, I think the, I was probably doing that, but it was when I read a book on songwriting by Jimmy Webb. Ooh. Uh, he's won tons of Grammys for songwriting and I think he actually has two rooms. He has like the creative room where he can't make any mistakes and everybody loves him and he's super awesome. <laughs> and then he has another room. room. <laughs> yeah. He has, he's like, he's like the, the analysis room or I forget what he called it, but he had like somewhere else he went to go, no, nah, this song's crap. <laughs> you know, it's like, ah, oh, change this. What is that word? That word doesn't work. You know? And, um, I was like, I love that two rooms, you know? And so I, I don't necessarily have two rooms, but I have that same concept of, um, I guess I do. I actually have like two logins. Mm. So I have like my production login where I'm I'm like I'm producer mode guy and I'm editing the videos and cutting and analyzing and, and working. And then I have the other one where I'm logged in on Facebook and I'm just kind of like writing software and and uh, that seems to work about the same. Yeah. And I do that like so I I think I do that in some ways by. Well, you know, there's this idea of like batching your tasks, right? You do all of mm -hmm. one thing at a time. And I do that, like my mindset. So like Mondays are with my clients and Tuesdays are recording the podcasts. And then I edit the podcast though on Sundays. So today I'm uh -huh. in creative space, but then on Sundays I can go back and look critically at it, right? Or I might exactly. write one day and then edit another day. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's the same, it's, yeah. And it's basically, it seems to be the best pattern that works. Because being analytical and critical is sort of like, death to creative juice uh -huh. right like you got to sort of just let it flow and kind of it's, it's sort of like what bird said you know like memorize the song and then forget it right so you gotta like he's analytic he memorizes it and then when he goes in to perform and create he's just like i'm just going with it he just lets it out so you need both if you want to have quality you have to have analysis and critical eye and you have to you have to try to not produce crap but if you apply that all the time, you just kill yourself. You never make anything. You never trust yourself. You know, you got to you got to sort of like let the crap flow and then clean it up after. Right. Like in the writing world. So um, and I took a writing class once and I remember the teacher asked all of us like what our process was. 
And there were a couple people who said that they revise while they write. And I said, oh my God, how, how is that? And they're like, it's very slow. And it was because they were constantly, they weren't separating the critical from the analysis. And it took them a lot longer. And so I do, like in writing, that's like a pretty big thing where uh, there's um, something Anne Lamott writes about, which is shitty first drafts. And that's what I do. Mm -hmm. I just get down, the. I get something down. And once I get something down, then I can go and edit it. But I have to get something down and I have to push through even when I'm like, oh, that sentence sucked. What is that word doing there? Oh, my God, that is not what I mean. Sometimes now I even do what I'll do to keep moving is I'll put an underline of like, I don't know what the word goes here, but there's something. (laughs) Exactly. No, no. Um, Yeah. You know, and this is actually a concept in painting. Um, A lot of painting, a lot of art is you have like 500 terrible paintings inside you. You have to get them out first. Right. Mm. And the idea is painting is a craft. You have to do it. So if you're trying to make a perfect painting for your first 10, they're not going to be perfect. You don't know what you're doing. So you got to do about 500 terrible, terrible paintings. So that sort of like gives you freedom to not be so critical. And you crank out 500 by your 500th painting. You're pretty good. Like you're like way better than you were when you started. Whereas if you take someone, you say, um, in this class, your paintings will be graded. You will do three paintings. They tend to make very terrible paintings unless they've already done their 500 before they even started school. So uh, I, I'm sort of a trying to adopt this with uh, programming, too. It's sort of, I'm sort of telling people, like, look, don't worry about making a crappy, crappy piece of software. You have 500 pieces of crap to get out of you. And when you're done with that, then you're probably going to make some pretty good stuff. Oh, my gosh. Zed, I had so much fun talking with you today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it was really fun. I actually um, don't do these too often, so uh, it was really great. <laughs>